0: You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Luke 15 is probably a familiar text to you, probably one that you've read and heard taught, and hopefully we can look at it from maybe a little different angle and the Lord will speak to you this morning in a way that that he never has. The theme of the Gospel of Luke is found in chapter 19, verse 10, where um, Luke tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That that is the heart of our God, is to find lost people. And if you've ever been lost, you know what a helpless feeling it is. There, there's something about lostness that comes uh, just, and it causes us to, to really be engaged. A, a lost child. A lost dog, a lost hunter in the woods, a lost tourist in a foreign city, a lost valuable or lost possession. It's like all of a sudden that even if it doesn't involve us, we just kind of get panicked. And if you've ever been on a on a hunting trip and, man, it's just sort of a casual thing and you're you're just out there walking around in the woods and then all of a sudden you realize you don't know where you're at, then this little casual stroll through the woods turns into panic. Or when a lady says, I've lost my wedding ring, you know, everybody stops and, and begins to comb the floor, you know, looking for a wedding ring. It, it creates within us sort of feelings that I think resonate with us in the, in the sense that we were born lost. And so because we were born in lostness, I think this lostness in life really engages us. Lost makes us pay attention It stirs emotions in us. It calls us to action. It's built into us as we were made in the image of God, but we were lost in our sin. And this morning, you're really in one of two places. You're either lost and found. You you were lost in your sin, but now you've been found by Jesus, and he's brought you to a place where you, you understand that you were separated from him and were hopeless and helpless without him, and yet he's brought you into a relationship with him and given you eternal life. Or you're lost and you're not found, and the sad thing about it is you, you may not even know that. And so the, the fact is you're either lost and found or you're still lost, and God is pursuing you. And until you recognize your lostness, you're helpless. And some people say, well, I'm searching for myself. And imagine if you were lost out in the woods and that's what you said. Well, I'm searching for myself. Well, that's really cool. But the thing is, you already know where you're at. The problem is nobody else does. You already know where you're at. You just don't know how to get out of the place that you're at. You don't know how to get back home. And so finding yourself isn't the problem. The problem is that you're hopelessly lost and you need Jesus to find you. And the only way that will happen is by calling out to him. He will not impose himself on you. He will not run out to where you're at and drag you home. You have to call out to him. And the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's what he's calling you to do this morning. If you don't know him, it's just to simply call out to him. And if you do know him, then you are on a mission with him to help him find other lost people. That's what you've been called to do. Once you've been found, now you are called to go with God and help Him find other lost people. And God's heart is for the lost. And that's the theme of our text this morning as we look at three specific parables directed at lostness. At the fact that there are things that are lost and God is going and seeking them and finding them and giving them identity, and giving them relationship and purpose. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And the context for us is set in verses 1 and 2, as it says that all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him and to hear him. So, sinners and tax collectors who weren't very well liked in that culture. Tax collectors were just the lowest of the low in terms of just how they were perceived because the government would say you need to collect this much money and tax collectors would then figure out how much they needed to make on top of that and they would go and collect that from the people and extort the people and take advantage of the people and there were no rules about how much they could take and it was just basically like a mafia shakedown come to your house they would say okay this is how much you need to pay and people wouldn't have it, and they would just come back every day, and they would terrorize you until you paid. And so people hated tax collectors, and especially the Pharisees who were very much loyal to their Jewish heritage and to the uh, Israeli way of life. They hated the tax collectors because they worked for the Roman government. They were like sellouts. Many of them would be Jewish people who would choose to work for the Roman government because it was a great way to make a living. And so these sinners and tax collectors and all these outcasts of society are drawing close to Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained. Shocking that they would complain about something Jesus is doing. And they say, This man receives sinners. Oh my, you know, what a horrible thing to do to receive people that need help. This man receives sinners. And even eats with them. And it's really sad because that's how some churches act. You know, people will say, oh, that church has got a bunch of sinners in it. And there's there's people there that I don't really like to associate with. Those are the kind of people that Jesus attracted and appealed to. And if we are demonstrating the love of Jesus, if we're a place that's focused on Jesus, if Jesus is preeminent in our church then we will attract sinners. If Jesus is is preeminent in your life and you're living out the life of Jesus and you're on mission with him, then you will attract sinners. You won't repel them. They won't think, oh man, he judges me or he looks down on me or he doesn't like me. She thinks she's better than me. Jesus never gave that perception to anyone. And we shouldn't be either. They were attracted to him. And it's because of this mentality of the scribes and the Pharisees who hated anyone who was not morally good like them and who didn't have their act together the way they did. It's because of this pride and this spiritual self-righteousness that Jesus tells and gives these three parables. The first one is called the parable of the lost sheep. It says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, standard herd, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Now this doesn't mean that the shepherd is going to leave the ninety-nine to die at the hands of wolves. It means that he would leave them in the care of other shepherds and his friends, they would typically travel together. Shepherds were, were not very well respected in this culture either. It was considered an unclean job. It was considered something that only the low of society uh, would do. And so they would often live together and in community together and they would herd their sheep in the summertime into the wilderness to eat the grass and to drink Uh, the water that would be flowing in the springs. And so what one of you, if you were a shepherd, if you had a hundred sheep and one wandered off, you wouldn't leave the 99 in the care of somebody else and go out and seek the one until you find it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. So when he finds this sheep, often they would be battered and beat up. They could be wounded. But you know sheep, if you've ever been around them, they aren't just going to follow you anyway. You don't just go, come on sheep, let's go. And they're going to walk behind you like a dog. They're not smart enough for that. And and typically when they've been in a place where they're just away from the herd and they ran off and, and now they've they've been in a traumatic situation, normally they're just paranoid to death and they don't recognize that you're there to help them. And so it wouldn't be uncommon for them to run away, continue to run, to hide, to think that somehow that it's better for them to, to continue in their paranoia. If you ever seen sheep that, you know, get out of the field and, and, and get themselves stuck into a fence or something. And then you try to get them out of the fence. They're kicking against you. They're ramming themselves into the fence. And you're just like, I'm just trying to help you. And you're making it more difficult. They're not the brightest animals. And so... What he says is you'll find it and then you would put it on your shoulders and sometimes the shepherd would even have to break a limb, would have to break one of the lamb's legs to completely incapacitate that sheep and then place it on the shoulders and, and then bring it back to the herd and, the, and they would wrap that leg and they would tend to it and, and that sheep would, would forever be endured, endeared to, to the shepherd. And that's what God has done for many of us. It's what he wants to do. He He came, he He seeks you, he finds you, he breaks you, and then he restores you. And it says when he comes back, when the shepherd comes back with this sheep, he calls together his friends and neighbors, all the other shepherds. He's like, man, come on, I found the one. Isn't this awesome? Saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. This was the heart of a shepherd. This is the heart of God. Maybe you're thinking, well, geez, you had 99. I mean, the things have like three or four a year. You know, what's the big deal? You lost one. Big deal. But that's not the heart of God. It's it's never the heart of God. God cares about individuals. And really the point of what Jesus is trying to get across here is found in the idea of rejoicing and celebrating the fact that one was lost and now it's found. And you notice, it says that he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. He brings it home. He calls together his friends and neighbors. And what do they do? Do they give a lecture to the sheep? Do they kick the sheep? Beat the crap out of it more? No. It says they rejoice. They throw a party. They're absolutely stoked that this one sheep that was lost is now found. And Jesus says, I say to you that likewise... There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons, righteous persons, upright people, pious people who need no repentance. Now, I don't want to get into all the theology of this because parables really are, are meant to give us and to serve one point. But it probably needs to be said that no one is in a place where they need not repent. And that's established throughout the Bible. And Paul would say in Romans that no one is righteous. No one is good. And so Jesus is not saying that there are actually people that don't need to repent. What he's saying is there are people who think they don't need to repent. There are people who think they're righteous enough to get to heaven apart from the grace of God. And those people are in a terrible place. The point of this parable is that The shepherd's friends rejoice when he finds that which was lost. And so too, God's friends. If you consider yourself a friend of God, then you ought to be rejoicing over lost people being found. That you ought to have as the passion of your life, being on mission with God to find lost people. You see, it's self-righteous people who feel like they're good enough on their own who don't care about lost people. They despise lost people. They look down on lost people. And if that's you this morning, you're not a friend of God. You're not being friendly to God in that way. God's not impressed with your spiritual resume. God's not impressed with your moral MVP awards. He's he's not impressed with that. In fact, if you're using that as a way to elevate yourself above others and as a way to make God obligated to you, then you are actually opposed to God. If you're looking down on people and you don't have a heart for the lost, that's opposed to God and that's what is being made clear here. The friends of God, as illustrated by the friends of the shepherd, rejoice when one who is lost is found the same point is made in the second parable the parable of the lost coin It says or what woman having 10 silver coins probably the, the the value of 10 days wages which is probably her dowry given to her by her father that which she would have brought into the marriage and if her husband dies or leaves her like a dirty shirt which happened quite often in that culture women were not valued or esteemed, and so this would have been her life savings. If she loses one of those coins, it's a big deal. One out of ten, it might not seem like that big of a deal to you. If you've got ten dollars and you lose a dollar, I mean, eh, you know, what what, what can you buy for a dollar anyway? But this was a this was a big deal. This is probably a woman who was very impoverished, and every coin mattered to her. What woman in this situation does not light a lamp? She realizes she it's night. She's counting her coins, and she, there's only nine. What woman among you wouldn't light the lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? There's a, there's a desperation. That I, I can't go to bed. I can't just go on living the way that I was living. I, I've got to find this. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Now, apparently, it's at night. She's calling her friend. She's yelling across the neighborhood. I found my coin. That which was lost is found. Apparently they knew about it. She'd been talking about it. They they heard her heart in her desperation wanting to find it. Likewise, verse 10, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels. Oftentimes you'll you'll hear it said that the angels rejoice. What it says is there's joy in the presence of angels. Speaking of Jesus. Speaking of God the Father. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. That they are rejoicing. Not that the angels aren't. But the point of it is is that God is rejoicing over the repentance of one sinner. That Jesus rejoices in that. That when one person who was lost is found that he is absolutely stoked about that. And so if you're his friend, then he's calling out to you like this woman did to her neighbors and her friends. He's calling out, he's saying, that which is lost is found. That which was away from me is now with me. And we should be rejoicing in that. And if we're not, then we have to wonder how close are we to the heart of God when this is the heart of God, when this is that which makes God's heart beat. And so the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, speak to us about the fact that God's heart is for the lost. And that same idea is carried on in the third parable that I want to look at in more depth. The parable of the lost son. The parable of the prodigal son is probably how you know this parable. But I think it's actually better titled, The Parable of the Lost Sons, Or the parable of the prodigal sons. Because as we see in verse 11, a certain man had two sons. He had two sons. And they're both illustrating a point for us. They're both separate from the father. They're both lost and the father seeks them both. They just go about their lostness in a different way. And we're going to talk about that. So I want to read this whole parable, and then I want to talk about the three characters in this parable. The father, the older son, and the younger son. We're actually going to look at it in in the opposite order of that. We're going to look at the younger son, then the older son, and then the father. He says, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood." And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal or wasteful living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But the older brother was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, "'Lo, these many years I have been serving you, "'I have never transgressed your commandment at any time, "'and yet you never gave me a young goat "'that I might make merry with my friends. "'But as soon as this son of yours came, "'who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, "'you killed the fatted calf for him?' And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Three characters, three characters that that really illustrate and, and teach us three very different points. The younger son, your typical sinner, who we would describe as, yeah, that person needs help. He was selfish. He went to his father and he said, dad, I want your stuff before you're dead. Can you imagine saying that to your parents? Some of you that, that have parents that are still alive. Maybe some of you that have parents that are getting up there in years. Can you imagine going to your dad and saying, hey, I know that you're, you know, you're not quite dead yet, but I mean, look, you're not fooling anybody. You you know, you got you got one foot in the grave, dude. So look, why don't I just spend it now? I mean, I'm not promised tomorrow. I might as well enjoy it now. You're like 80. You can't enjoy it. Can I, can I have it now? I mean, that is that takes some guts. That takes a person who is completely consumed with selfishness. The younger son was selfish, and he was wasteful. His dad didn't even argue with him. He gave it to him. He gave him a third of his inheritance because the way it was set up is if you had two sons, the older son would get two-thirds of the inheritance And the younger son would get one-third. And so he gave him one-third of his possessions. And he went out and he sold them. He traded it in. He did whatever it took. And he got the cash. And he went and lived the high life. And he wasted it. He partied. He lived wild. He paid for prostitutes. He indulged his flesh. He was the typical partier. If there was cocaine, he would have been snorting it. If there was meth, he would have been cooking it and smoking it. If there... Was pot, he would have been token on that. This guy was the typical wild dude. And typically, this would be the guy that you'd say, man, he needs help. He is lost. This is the one that, that parents call their prodigal, the one who is out there. And at some point, as he's partying and living it up, he runs out of money. He only had so much, he wastes it all. And so now he's got to get a job. The only problem is the economy's horrible. There's a famine in the land. There's no jobs except feeding pigs, which if shepherd is down here, well, pig farmers one notch below that because pigs were an unclean animal. Jews despised pig farmers. I mean, when Jesus sent the swine over the the hill, their their FEMA wasn't out there, you know, uh, complaining about it. They didn't care. It, It was just part of the the culture that pigs and pig farmers were absolutely descri- de- despised. Did I say FEMA, I meant PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. That's what I meant. So this younger son, he's got to basically stoop to the lowest position in society. I don't know what that would look like today, but just think of the lowest job, the the thing that you would say, "I would never do that." I'll go here, but I'm never going there. He has no choice. He has absolutely no choice is that or starve or humble himself and go back home, which at this point he's not ready to do. He's out there feeding the pigs and he's actually starving to death because nobody's giving him any food at all. I don't know what the arrangements were as far as him feeding the pigs, but apparently he wasn't getting paid very well for it and he was not even able to feed himself and he says i would gladly eat the pods that the pigs are eating but he doesn't want to do that i mean it's bad enough he's feeding them he's not going to eat what they eat and his buddies that he's been partying it up with who he's been buying cocaine and and women for and drugs and alcohol and and he's just been you know he's had a he's had an entourage i mean the guy had money now he's got no money and nobody's there for him at all they're gone they don't care about him. And one day, it, it says he came to himself. It, it's just like he had an epiphany. It was like, what am I doing? How many of my father's hired servants, the slaves, have bread enough in despair? And I perish with hunger. And so he, he creates a plan. He concocts a, a plan. He's going to go home, and this is what he's going to say. and He's got it just down perfectly, what he's going to say to his dad. And I know my dad's going to be angry with me, and he's going to give me a lecture and he's going to have to think about it. And he's probably going to put me in the barn for a couple of weeks. And make me really pay for what I did. But but my words, the, the things that I say, it's going to melt his heart. He's just going to he's going to take me back in. And he comes home. And he begins to, to cry out to his father. And, and he, he can barely even get the words out of his mouth. And his father is just there ready to restore him. And why is that? It's because he came to a place of repentance. He came to a place where he recognized that he needed love and grace and acceptance. He couldn't find it in and of himself that his idol of pleasure, that his idol of entertainment, that his idol of money only led him to devastation and to destruction and to despair. That's where his idol led him. Your idols will lead you places. You'll become like your idol. And he had worshipped money. He had worshipped pleasure. He had worshiped entertainment and wild living and that's where it led him and he had to forsake that idol and come back to his father in order to find restoration and that's what you have to do if in your natural proclivity and personality you are a person who demonstrates your sin nature with wild living with partying with alcoholism with drug abuse with sex abuse if that's you I don't mean sex abuse like, you know what I mean, sex worship, sexual sin. If that's you, then you have to forsake that and come back to the father and he's waiting for you. But see, the older son, the older son's the the kind of person that actually parents don't worry about that much, but they should. The older son is the kind that fills a lot of churches. It too is part of your personality and your natural proclivity. It's the way you were born and it's how you demonstrate your sin nature. You just do it differently. You're the goody tushes. You're the person that seemingly always made good decisions. You weren't the partier. You looked at that and you said, look where that leads. I don't want that. But those good decisions and your morality created within you spiritual pride. It created within you this looking down on other people, this snobbishness, this I'm better than you mentality. And see, just like the younger son, the partier, carries that into their relationship with God. If you're a person who's wild and crazy and, you know, struggles with sexual sin and struggles with drugs and alcohol and all that crazy stuff, if that's you, it doesn't just go away when you come to Christ. And the same is true if you're the older brother, that pride and goody tissues and self-righteousness doesn't go away. You carry that into your relationship with Christ. And now you have this sort of superiority complex that you think you're better than, than others, that you look down on other people, that you don't have a heart for the lost. And in fact, what happens is you begin to think that God is obligated to you because God, I was a virgin when I got married. I made all the right choices. God, I've never partied, I've never done drugs, I've never been drunk. And see, what you don't realize is that, that that pride is just as ugly to God as all of those things that you consider to be sinful. It's just as ugly to Him, it's just as opposed to Him. And it draws you just as far from Him as any of those other sins do. Your pride. Your self-righteousness. It separates you from your father. Just like the older son was separated from his father. Here they are. They're partying. They're rejoicing because the younger son has been found. And where's the older brother? He's out feeling sorry for himself because I've been here and I've been faithful to you, Dad. I, I didn't waste what you gave me. Because, see, the dad gave him his portion as well. In verse 12, it says he divided to them his livelihood. But he was the saver. He was the good one. He made good choices. And that's a good thing. But his morality caused him to be separated from the father. You see the, the party, the celebration, the rejoicing. That's a picture of relationship with the father. And guess who was there? The younger son. The wild one. The crazy one. The one that wasted his whole life. The one that probably had syphilis. And probably whose mind was trashed from drug abuse. The one who had been with countless women. He's in the party. He's, he's got a relationship with the father. And guess who doesn't? The older one. The one who's been upright and moral. The one who's made good decisions and who will tell you regularly that they've made good decisions. That they're a good person. They've never been drunk. They've never been high. They don't ever cuss. And now he's ticked. Now his sin is going to come out. His heart will be revealed for what it is. And it's just as dark and just as ugly as his younger brother just manifested in a different way. And it comes out and how dare you celebrate that son of yours, that piece of, how dare you celebrate him? He walked out on us. I've been doing all the work for him. How dare you? I've been here all these years and you haven't even killed a stupid goat. And you kill the fatted calf for my, he's not even my brother, for that son of yours. This is an outrage. I'm not going into that party. I'm not going to rejoice. I don't care that he's found. I wish he was dead. And it's this obligation that you've put on God because you're, in your mind, a good person. But what you don't see is that God sees your heart. And God knows that you're wicked and you're in desperate need of him. It's just that you manifest your sin differently. But you think because it's not so outward and it's not so public and it isn't defined by those things that are really bad. You can go to church and nobody talks about you. Nobody cares about the sins of the heart. Nobody judges people that have spiritual pride or self-righteousness. Those things are almost accepted. Those things are almost part of the program. I mean, if you're really going to be a a good Christian, it's almost like you've got to be that way. And that is not true. And that's what this parable demonstrates for us, is that both sons were opposed to God. And yet only one son came back and found relationship, the other son is still separated from the father. He never did come in. And Jesus leaves it kind of open-ended that way because he's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. All of these parables were directed at them. They were the older brother. They were the ones that thought they had it all together, when in reality, they were opposed to God. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're an older brother type. And maybe you've been complaining to God. Of, How could this happen to me? Why would you allow this, God? You owe me. I'm a good person. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's an older brother axiom. That's an older brother mentality. Why do good things bad things happen to good people? There are no good people. Your heart is wicked. It's opposed to God. It's dark, it's black, it's ugly to him. God hates self-righteousness. He says your righteousness is like filthy rags. What does he mean by that? He means those good works that we try to produce on our own to make him obligated to love us and to bless us. Don't bridge a gap between God and man, they actually alienate us further. What we need to do is fall upon Him in desperation, cry out to Him and say, God, even though nobody knows about my sin, even though people don't see my sin the way they did the younger brother, it's not as obvious. But God, I'm a sinner. I'm prideful. I'm arrogant. I'm self righteous. I'm pious. I'm proud. I'm judgmental. I have hatred in my heart for people. I think I'm better than people. I'm a hypocrite. And see, it's not as obvious, but God sees it and you have to repent of it and you have to humble yourself and you have to say, God, please allow me to come into the, the party, in, into the place of celebration and rejoicing because I'm alienated from you as well. And see, when you look at the younger brother and the older brother, you see that the younger brother wanted his father's stuff. That's what he wanted. But so did the older brother. He just went about it in a different way. The younger brother just was blunt and bold and said, give it to me. I want it now. It went along with his personality. It's who he was. He was brash and out there. And I'm going to live it up. I don't care what people think about me. But the older brother, he's far more conservative. He does care what people think. He is concerned about his image. So he's not going to say anything until the circumstances heated up and brought it out. And when it did, then he revealed his heart. That he only wanted his father's stuff also. How come you've never killed a fatted calf for me? See, he, he just wanted his father's stuff. That's what he wanted all along. He was just going about it a different way. Well, the third character that we see in this story is the father. And we see that the father is loving and gracious and kind and patient and willing to receive anyone, no matter what they've done. You notice that the son came to himself. He rehearsed this speech of what he was going to say to his father. And he got there and he really couldn't even hardly get it out of his mouth and the father cuts him off because he wasn't so concerned with what he said. He was concerned with his heart and that he was repentant. And you also notice that it just happened to be that on the day he came back, the father was there waiting for him. I don't think that's coincidence. That it was like, you know, I think I'm going to go out to the end of the driveway and see what's going on. I think he went there every day. Every day he went there. And many days, every day, but this day, he would turn around and he would walk back to his house alone because the son didn't come back. He was too busy living it up. But this day, he saw him from a long way off and he ran to meet him. He met him there and he didn't give him a lecture like I'm sure the younger son was anticipating. There was nothing that needed to be said. He already knew he had blown it. He didn't need to say to him, do you realize that you wasted what I've worked so hard for? He, he, he already knew that. He didn't need to say, do you know that you're going to now have nothing for me to give you? That, that this is it. It's, it's over. You've, you've wasted that part of your life. Didn't need to be said. He already knew that. All of the repercussions for his sin were very obvious. His reputation had been ruined. He was a laughing stock. All those things were known. What does the father say? Put shoes on his feet. Slaves didn't wear shoes. He was saying, you're not a slave. You're my son. Many of you are, are slaves to your sin. And you're thinking, this is, this is all that I have. I'm just in bondage to this. And Jesus is saying to you this morning, I want to put shoes on your feet. You're not a slave to that. You don't have to be a slave to this world. You're my son. You're my daughter. You have a relationship with me. He puts a robe on him. See, the son would have been smelling like pigs, dirty, clothes tattered, He doesn't leave him in that. He takes those off and he clothes him in a brand new robe. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He's clothed us in his robe of righteousness. We didn't deserve it. We can't earn it. You can't buy it. It has to be given to you. And that's what the Father does for us. Is he gives us his righteousness. And what you need to do, you guys, if you're a younger Brother, type of person is that you need to see yourself clothed in his righteousness. There's no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. And you need to begin to identify with your robe of righteousness and not your tattered, smelly pig clothes anymore. You need to identify with who you are in Christ. And when given the opportunity to sin and to go back into that lifestyle that is sort of your habit and sort of your personality and sort of what you're drawn to, that you say, I've been given a robe of righteousness. Why would I want to live like that? Why would I want to go back to that? That's our Father. He accepts you. He loves you. He restores you. He gives you shoes to signify that you're not a slave to your sin anymore. He'll give you victory. He puts a robe on you signifying that you're no longer clothed in your own filthy rags, but that you are clothed in his righteousness. And he puts a ring on your finger signifying relationship and commitment that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Now certainly this son could get up the next morning and go right back To where he came from. And guess what? The father would be waiting for him again. That's the point. The father longed to find that which was lost. Whether it was the younger son or the older son. Because as they're partying and enjoying and celebrating and rejoicing and eating some awesome steak, all of a sudden it occurs to the father, where's where's my older son? He ought to be here. And he goes out and tries to find him. And he does find him. He's pouting and he's feeling sorry for himself and he's ticked. And he tells him, come in, come celebrate, come rejoice. All that I have is yours. It always has been. I love you. And if you're that that older son that has rebelled against God through your own righteousness and your own sense of goodness and your own morality, you too need to repent. And you too need to come and find yourself in fellowship with the Father. Otherwise, you're outside his fellowship. And he wants to bring you in. He wants to celebrate with you as well. That's the heart of our God, to seek and to save that which is lost. And you guys, if you know Jesus this morning, if you're a Christian, that ought to be your heart as well. That ought to be your passion. That ought to be the pursuit of your life, to be on mission with him, finding lost people. And some of you are on a mission of worry and doubt and fear and all that's happening with the economy, and that's become your mission. And God's saying to you, look, I'm going to provide for you. Just get involved with what makes my heart beat and everything else will take care of itself. I'm on a mission to find lost people. And I've been on that mission before the foundations of the world. You get to be a part of something so much bigger than yourself that way. You get to be a part of something that isn't mediocre and that isn't mundane and that doesn't fade away, but something that's eternal and that lasts and that has meaning and purpose. Quit seeking after things that just become part of your idolatry. It will lead you into further destruction. See, the father understood that both of his sons were idol worshipers. His younger son worshipped the idol of pleasure, entertainment, and fun. His older son worshipped the idol of his own goodness, of his perception, what people thought about him, his reputation. And that's an idol. You can be consumed by that idol. and You have to lay those idols down and come to the father. And get on mission with Him. Otherwise, your life is empty. No matter what extreme you find yourself on. The wild partier or the pious, self-righteous, arrogant person who thinks they're better than everybody else. It's idolatry either way. And what He wants you to do is lay it down, come to Him, get on mission with Him, and find real purpose and meaning, something outside of yourself, something that's bigger than yourself, as you get involved With his plan of redemption, of finding that which is lost. Quit seeking after the things of this world. Whether it be normal, everyday things, if that becomes your focus, it's an idol. If that becomes your life, you've got to lay it down. Become a part of what God has planned for your life. We serve an amazing God, you guys. An amazing Father who loves us so much and whose heart breaks for the lost. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you do not have a relationship with the Father this morning, please cry out to Him. Come back to Him. No matter if you're a younger brother or an older brother, whatever you have done that has separated you from the Father, come back to Him. However you manifest your sin, come back to Him today. Get on mission with Him. Begin to serve Him in the calling that He's given to you. It's going to look differently for all of us, but it changes how you view life. All of a sudden, your job takes on new meaning. All of a sudden, the homework that you're doing for school means a lot more. All of a sudden, those dishes that you're doing for the third time that day take on a whole new meaning as you understand kingdom and you understand that you're serving God, doing it for Him as a part of His mission. It changes everything. It changes your life. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we, we thank You for this time in Your Word. God, we thank You Lord, that you are a father who wants to seek and to save that which is lost, that you long to find lost people, that it breaks your heart. And Lord, we ought to be rejoicing with you when, when that which is lost is found. And God, forgive us for being focused on so many other things that we've lost sight of what is important to you. Lord, that our lives have been consumed with things that, yes, are important and, yes, are meaningful, but, Lord, they're... They're not very important and they're not meaningful when they don't include you. When they become the focus of our life, they become an idol. God, may we lay down our idols this afternoon. Lord, we have such a propensity toward idolatry, toward elevating things to godlike status in our life, Lord. Please, God, tear them down, root them out of our lives. Lord, we want to be found by you. We want to have relationship with you. And then, God, we want to be a part of your mission to go find other lost people. God, do that work. There are so many needy, lost people in this city. God, may we go and be a part of finding them and giving them identity in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at PO Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.